This is WCNY's The Capitol Press Room, and we're going to get into the weeds of the state's Commission on Forensic Science, whose mandate includes developing minimum standards and an accreditation program for forensic laboratories in New York. And to help us unpack the work of the commission, we're joined by Jessica Goldswaite, a staff attorney with the DNA unit of the Legal Aid Society, who also serves on the commission. Welcome to the show, Jessica. Thank you for having me. So for starters, how did you end up on the state's commission on forensic science and what was appealing to you about actually serving on the commission? Well, my boss asked me. Uh, my boss was a, formerly a, a commissioner representing the public defense bar, uh, David Loftus, who's uh, head of forensic science litigation and post-conviction litigation here at Legal Aid. Unfortunately, he was unable to continue in that role. Um, but I've been in the DNA unit for 10 years. I've followed the commission's work with great interest and engaged with the commission. So he asked me to do it, and I jumped at the opportunity. So as I mentioned at the top, the state commission has responsibility for setting standards and an accreditation program for public forensic laboratories in New York State. Why does that matter to the general public? What are these forensic laboratories responsible for examining? It's critical because forensic science is used as evidence in literally thousands of cases uh, in New York every year. I mean, just in New York City alone, we see at least a thousand DNA cases uh, yearly. And that's not to mention other types of forensic science uh, that the commission regulates. For instance, firearm tool marks. What that is, is when a analyst uh, purports to say that a, a particular gun fired a particular bullet. Um, and we have a lot to to say about whether there's much science in that particular type of forensic science, but also latent prints, toxicology, seized drug analysis. There's a whole array of forensic sciences that fall under the jurisdiction of the commission. And, and all of these things are critical evidence in these prosecutions. In fact, our highest court in New York has said so. It's said that forensic science, particularly DNA, has this aura of invincibility for jurors. And it's not just jurors. It's lawyers, it's judges, and it's our clients that have to rely on evaluating this type of evidence with their lawyer's help to determine what choices to make with respect to an open case that can affect their life, their family's life. So yeah, it's it's crucial and it's crucial that the public trust this kind of evidence coming out of New York public labs, which is what the commission has oversight over. Well, I'm glad you mentioned that issue of perception, because I think for a lot of people, their idea of forensic laboratories might stem from how they are portrayed in pop culture, like with a show like CSI, where both the gathering of evidence and the processing of evidence and the analysis of the evidence is done in shiny labs by infallible uh, law enforcement and scientific experts. But from your experience and from your perch with the Legal Aid Society, how does that portrayal and the subsequent assumptions that people make about these processes compare to reality? That's a great question, because as is increasingly being recognized, at least in the larger scientific community, there's very little science in many of the forensic sciences. They weren't developed in laboratories. They were developed in police precincts. So they don't adhere to the scientific method. So things like error rates, reproducibility, extensive testing, things you all sort of think of as part and parcel of science, 
is not present in all the forensic sciences. Now, forensic DNA is usually held out to be the exception to that rule, right? Because DNA did come from uh, a lot of research and, and laboratories and was adapted to the forensic uh, forensic world. So it has always been held as an exception and always been held as the gold standard of forensic science. Because it's so well regarded as a gold standard, if you dig in a little deeper, you'll see that that's actually a problematic assumption in many respects, right? So the science behind using and the testing of forensic DNA uses PCR, which you know we're familiar uh, with generally from uh, the pandemic, right? right. Uh, <laughs> uh, that That is gold standard techniques. But the issue is, think about the way forensic DNA testing is being employed. At the very early stages, right, uh, forensic DNA was being applied to bodily fluids left at crime scenes. You have a big splotch of blood, saliva, or semen. Those kinds of substances contain a lot of DNA, so they're rich sources of DNA, and you have some sense, right, of the bodily fluid that is leaving the DNA, be it blood or, say, semen. So you'd get just one person's DNA, or maybe you'd get like a mixture of two people's DNA, say, in, for instance, in a, a sexual assault. But over time, the technology and DNA testing got a lot more sensitive, a lot more sophisticated. And as DNA sort of like earned its chops, right, and developed this reputation for being able to identify people and this gold standard rep, law enforcement became really eager to submit different kinds of evidence for testing, particularly items that were believed to have been touched or handled by the perpetrator of a, a crime. So think guns knife handles, even duct tape used to bind a victim in a crime. All these things, law enforcement wanted the answer. It's understandable, right? Wanted the answer to the question, who handled this gun when they were uh, shooting? The problem is it's a very different kind of evidence. It's, it's often known as touch DNA, which can be a little misleading. Hmm. But basically, right, you want to answer the question, who handled these items at the time of the crime. But the features of this kind of evidence are a far cry from that um, big splotch of blood that had one person's DNA. Instead, what you see are mixtures of more than one person's DNA on the item of evidence. You can have two, three, four, five, or even more people's DNA on the item of evidence. And that becomes a stew to interpret. So it's no longer the relatively straightforward single contributor DNA comparison to a known person like a suspect or a victim. Now you have this stew of DNA and it's hard to figure out the DNA profiles of the people that contributed to it. You may get um, DNA that's degraded by the elements, right? That can cause missing data. And you can get DNA in tiny, tiny amounts. I mean, DNA DNA evidence is always tiny. But uh, when it's on touched or handled objects, uh, it can be even smaller, definitely smaller than an equivalent size of, say, blood or saliva, all other things being equal. You can get the DNA of relatives on the same uh, item of evidence. And we know, right, we get our DNA from our uh, our parents we share DNA. So when you have DNA of relatives, it's even harder to figure out um, because there's so much shared DNA between relatives. So all these things um, 
contribute to making items of DNA handled like guns, particularly we see thousands of guns. Uh, the, the New York City Office of Chief Medical Examiner here in New York City, which is responsible for all forensic testing in New York City of DNA, tests thousands of guns a year. So these are very challenging uh, items uh, to interpret, but that's not normally what you think of as DNA testing as being rock solid. It actually requires these sophisticated software programs to help interpret. Well, given the challenges, not just in analyzing DNA, but in some of the other work that these public laboratories are responsible for, whether it's latent print processing or firearm issues, does the state have a meaningful set of standards and accreditation for them to follow? Is there reason that New Yorkers should have faith in the public laboratories from, again, your perspective with the Legal Aid Society, but also knowing how the sausage is made with your work on the commission? So New York actually was the first state to require that its public labs be accredited. But it's important to realize that being accredited by this agency called ANAB and accreditation by the commission does not guarantee reliability. Accreditation is really a set of minimum standards. So it's really the floor. And it's important to have, for sure, because it ensures that there's a set of procedures and processes in place to identify errors, to report them, and to correct them, um, and that the laboratory has standard operating procedures and abides by those. But it is really, and I want to stress this, misleading to think that because a lab is accredited, it is producing quality work. Just think of all the lab scandals across the country. Many of them involve accredited laboratories. And certainly accreditation cannot guarantee the validity of the scientific method that's being used in a case. Um, and it certainly can't say that there hasn't been contamination or a sample switch or some kind of error in testing. And it and critically, it doesn't get at the scientific method itself. It doesn't look at whether the methods being used to generate this evidence are themselves valid. So given the concerns that you highlighted about the accreditation, uh, what it means, as well as the import of the standards, as you know, they are minimum standards, they're a, a floor should the state have a more rigorous set of vetting for the laboratories? Should it have higher standards of, of what it expects from these laboratories? I think so. Uh, unfortunately, I think what has happened is that the commission has abrogated its responsibility of setting a program of accreditation and minimum standards to an outside accrediting agency uh, known as ANAB. Um, but it doesn't have to do that. The statute that has authorized the commission gives it the power to set um, minimum standards. We need to do a better job at assuring meaningful review of these forensic sciences, many of which have no science, right, in the forensic science. But I don't think that can happen until there's a more fundamental overhaul of the commission. Um, and that is because the commission is not independent from law enforcement. 
And after a quick break, we'll continue our conversation about the State Commission on Forensic Science with our guest, Commission member Jessica Goldthwaite, a staff attorney with the DNA unit of the Legal Aid Society. Support for the Capitol Press Room provided by the New York State AFL-CIO, a federation of 3,000 unions fighting for working people by keeping New York State union strong. Visit unionstrongny.org for more information. For listeners just joining us, we're continuing our conversation about the state's Commission on Forensic Science with Commission member Jessica Goldthwaite, a staff attorney with the DNA unit of the Legal Aid Society. So before the break, you were talking about the composition of the commission and why you're concerned about that. And for listeners, the commission and its body is set in state law in terms of who's going to serve on it. So what are the problems with the makeup of the commission as you see it? First and foremost is that its administrative arm, the Office of Forensic Services, is located in the law enforcement agency, the Division of Criminal Justice Services, and that the chairperson, as you mentioned by statute, is an ex officio member. So the head of DCJS is the head of the commission. So that's a problem. You want independence uh, from law enforcement. One of the issues with forensic science that has been recognized by uh, scholars and advocates is that the close ties between forensic labs and law enforcement has led to bias in the work, has led to less than reliable results, and has really not led to robust scientific method being employed in a lot of forensic sciences. There's also the issue of who's on the commission. We have right now three heads of forensic laboratories the commission itself regulates. So it's sort of a system where you have the people being regulated doing the regulation. And many more actually have ties with the very um, labs that they are regulating. Not all, for sure. There's only one spot that's statutorily mandated to go to a New York State laboratory director. But by practice, other members are frequently, and right now, like I said, there are three members, current heads of labs that are regulated by the commission. And this creates really a conflict-ridden situation where the interests of law enforcement, because there's also a prosecutor and typically the superintendent of police for New York. When we have one. When we have one, right. The interests of law enforcement have typically aligned with the labs and that creates essentially a voting block so that other voices like those of the defense are drowned out. So then what does a commission make up look like that makes sense to you? Do we just split things down the middle with prosecutors and defense attorneys and let them battle it out for accreditation and standards? No, I think it has to rest in the hands of scientists, independent scientists, not those that are actually being regulated. Certainly the voices of labs uh, that are being regulated should be accounted for, should be heard, absolutely, because there are special needs in New York State, and those voices should be heard. But I think there has to be a rethinking 
of the basic structure of the commission, I think the most important thing is that it be taken away from law enforcement and that it has more independent scientists not affiliated with New York Labs on it. But it should be science driven. You do need some representation for sure from lawyers, but really I think the majority of the composition should be scientists and they should be researchers that really are committed to instilling a culture of science in New York's public laboratories. So the commission itself, while it has duties and responsibilities, it doesn't operate in a vacuum. And we often have court rulings that will impact, say, how forensic science can and can't be used. So how influential are court rulings in impacting the procedures and practices of forensic laboratories? Oh, I think very, very much so. And what's interesting, actually, is how courts view the work of the commission. For many years, when the defense would challenge a controversial new method of uh, forensic testing and continues to, to challenge, take, for instance, a controversial forensic DNA method called low copy number DNA testing or the forensic statistical tool, which was this software package used to interpret DNA mixtures that I mentioned uh, earlier, um, courts would look to see what the Commission on Forensic Science and its DNA subcommittee, which is comprised solely of scientists, would see what they said about the method. The Commission and the DNA subcommittee have the responsibility to approve all new forensic methods in the state. And the DNA subcommittee really has the final word on DNA methods. It submits what are called binding recommendations to the full commission that you want the scientists to be making a scientific judgment about the validity of um, a scientific method, especially something as complicated as DNA. In practice, this has turned out to be very problematic. The review hasn't been meaningful, hasn't been searching, uh, full validation work and information hasn't been provided to the subcommittee. And the subcommittee members have conflicts of their own uh, ties to laboratories in New York. However, courts for years largely ignored that and took the commission and the subcommittee's approval of a methodology as evidence of its general acceptance by the larger scientific community. Fortunately, the highest court in New York, the Court of Appeals, has recently said in People versus Williams, wait a minute. Of course, if the DNA subcommittee, which is composed of scientists, passes on a method, that's relevant evidence of whether scientists approve of the method as being reliable, um, but it's not conclusive of it because there can be other scientists that disagree. Um, so it's not dispositive of the issue of whether the scientific community as a whole thinks this method is reliable. And in fact, that was exactly right when it came to DNA methods like low copy number, DNA testing, and forensic statistical tool. Some of the country's most renowned forensic scientists actually thought that those methods were not uh, generally accepted as reliable, that they were unreliable methods being used. So fortunately, the court has made a very clear statement that um, the work of the commission cannot just be regarded as a rubber stamp uh, for the approval of the use of the method. I think, though, your question was about how labs regard um, rulings as well, and I think it's very important. If a court 
holds that a method um, is not generally accepted as reliable and admissibility challenge, uh, then the evidence produced using that method can't come into court, at least not in that particular courtroom. And a lot of laboratories certainly spend a lot of resources in developing these methods. So it, so it is a big deal. Well, finally, and we have about a minute left, when we think about the standards and the accreditation process, is this something that gets reviewed annually and gets updated annually? And if so, do New Yorkers have an opportunity, say, in the near future to, to weigh in on these uh, standards and regulations, or are they out of luck, at least for now? The commission meetings are public. Um, they're also broadcast on YouTube. So I encourage uh, members of the public to watch. Um, if you have a concern about forensic testing, you can absolutely address it to the commission. Standards and accreditation, uh, as I said, we've really delegated responsibility for accreditation to uh, ANAB, but that is periodically reviewed. Uh, there's some type of review every year, and then there are big reviews uh, less frequently. Um, and you will hear us discuss at these meetings uh, things that affect accreditation or disclosures that are mandated by accreditation. For instance, if the lab makes a mistake in testing, um, they have to report it if it's significant enough, and we can discuss it. Uh, and if there is concern by the public about the use of forensic methods, you know, I encourage the public to to reach out to the commission. Um, we want to hear your concerns. Well, unfortunately, that's all the time we have. We've been talking about the state's commission on forensic science with one of its members, Jessica Goldthwaite. He was a staff attorney with the DNA unit of the Legal Aid Society. Jessica, thank you so much for making the time. I really appreciate it. Thank you. for Capital Press Room provided by the William G. Pomeroy Foundation. Communities across the Empire State have stories to tell. A roadside marker funded by the William G. Pomeroy Foundation can help your town or city educate the public, encourage pride of place, and promote local tourism. More about the Pomeroy Foundation's New York State Historic Marker Grant Program for 501c3 organizations, nonprofit academic institutions, and local state and federal government entities at wgpfoundation.org.